You're listening to Red Nation Online. You're listening to the Paul James and Soccer Podcast. Commentary and analysis by Paul James, former Canadian soccer player, television analyst, coach, and member of the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame. Well, here we are with episode 15 of the Paul James on Soccer podcast, and it was a jubilant week for Toronto FC, while being a heartbreaking and frustrating week for the Vancouver Whitecaps and the Canadian women's national team. Let's kick things off by discussing Canada's shocking and unfortunate loss to France at the Women's World Cup. With the defeat, Canada will not advance to the knockout stage, and unfortunately, you called how difficult that match was going to be in last week's podcast. After playing such an inspiring game against Germany in their tournament opener, Canada did not play well against a France side that truly dominated them. What was your assessment of the match, Paul? Yes, Steve. I uh, Well, I think it was a disappointing uh, performance, first of all, uh, over the 19 minutes that we could see um, from our Canadian team. And I think particularly after the Germany game, what I would reference last week with saying that um, I was concerned about it, you know, when you play... Uh, such a physical encounter that the German uh, game would have been for them. It can definitely sap your energy. But, you know, to be fair to them, they had plenty of time to, to recuperate and to, uh, and, to, uh, and to prepare for this next game. And uh, in my mind, the question definitely would be with Carolina Maracci is the fact that she knew well in advance, you know, from the draw to the time of the games, that, uh, you know, she should have seen that the, the real crucial game was the France game. And that would be the game that you have to be prepared for. And it really did look that uh, the Canadian players weren't as prepared. And um, I would say that uh, as much as uh, France were good and as much as the, the, the Canadian players on a technical level are just not uh, at that level of the French on that particular day, there's also a coaching issue in this particular game, the man management of that particular game, but also the preparation because it was sadly missing. That would be my overall um, overall assessment, you know. And sometimes, you know, I, I said last week I was uh, very uh, positive about uh, Carolina Maracci, and I think to a certain extent there she, she really deserves it because that was a really difficult game to go into against Germany, and uh, and I thought Canada did. They battled well, but you could see that uh, they weren't on the same level and Germany would uh, would be classified as being a bit unlucky not to have scored more. But uh, ultimately, uh, you know, from from the perspective of watching that, uh, that second game, it appeared that the Canadian players were sapped of energy or overconfident or, or felt that, uh, you know, maybe uh, too much perfume had been sprayed on them about uh, how great they were and how great Christine Sinclair's uh, performance was. And they, they carried that into this game and uh, just didn't come out. You know, it, it, aside from the tactics, it was the, uh, the one-on-ones and the competitiveness. They got out-battled in the end all over the place. And then in terms of their ability to, uh, to build a play, which has been what everyone has talked about, you know, with, um, with Evan Pellerut and, uh, and the, new, the new era of Canadian women's football. Well, it was sadly missing on, um, on that particular day. And... Um, yeah, it was a, it was a disappointing result. I don't think anyone comes out there with uh, with any kind of credit. So it's the opposite assessment for, from my, my perspective of the Germany game. I thought the Germany game they they uh, they did a good job and were prepared for that as much as that they, they uh, got outplayed in the end. Uh, 
they uh, hung in there and I thought they uh, could have nicked the result. The France game was the opposite and uh, they really didn't deserve anything from it. As with the Canadian men's national team's disappointing display at the Gold Cup, some are now calling out uh, Carolina Marache as a type of paper tiger for her player choices or tactical decisions and her perceived inability to have her team prepared for France, as well as the fact that her team also has not scored a goal from open play. Um, While I don't think anyone managing or playing at that level is above having a critical eye cast upon them, I do find it hard to believe that she could go from a genius to a chump essentially overnight. What do you make of how some people have seemingly turned on Marache? Well, I, you know, I think it's fair. And I think, to be honest, uh, it's not that I've turned on Marache. I just call things as you see them. Um, and again, without flogging it, the Germany game, we did the assessment there. So now we're moving on to the France game. And uh, unfortunately, she got exposed there. I would say that the critique hasn't been strong enough or tough enough with Marache. Particularly, I, you know, the disappointment I have would be Jason DeVos's critique. You know, Jason was more worried about throwing her under the bus. But, uh, I mean, you know, we needed to be straight and honest, particularly from profile people who are on national TV. You need to call it as you see it. And same with Claire Rustad, whose comment about, uh, you know, going back to the old days of, uh, of playing direct football or just knocking it, uh, knocking it long. You know, and I think Claire has been poised during this tournament. It's, it's great. It's just, you know, seems like I'm doing an, an assessment of the analysts. But it's so important. You know, if you're getting half a million... Uh, viewers watching on TV, then what you say as commentators is critical. And if you're making bad comments, they have bad consequences. If you're making good comments, they have good consequences. Because it's not about that. It's it's about the fact that in Canada we don't have the the uh, the, the brand of player that we necessarily want to play a certain style. You know, it's uh, it's and the criticism of let's say, for example, now Evan Pellerud gets gets sort of illuminated here in uh, in, in our own assessment and ignorance are, are, are about how we look at the game, and hence why you know I was disappointed in the in the comments of, uh, of Jason DeRoss and, and Claire Rustad there because it's wrong. Go back to Evan Pellerud. Evan Pellerud took the team in uh, in uh, 2003 to the semi final. Every game that they've played uh, against France uh, under Evan Pellerud, they didn't lose uh, to France. They either won or they, or they tied. This is the first time in the under-20 tournament of the women's program that we haven't qualified, and that was Caroline Marachi. There's plenty to criticize or, or to critique Carolina Marachi on a negative standpoint. I don't necessarily feel that all that would be justified just on the game against France. But what it really does talk about, it talks about the way that we play. And Evan Pellerou took an absolute pounding at the end for somebody that did a wonderful job for Canadian, uh, for Canadian women's football in terms of professionalizing the approach. If you look at our World Cup performance now that we're going to be knocked out, uh, it, was, it was far worse than anything that uh, Evan Pellerud was involved in at the World Cup level. Irrespective of what we did prior to getting there, that's like England. England did great in qualifying, won their qualifying group by a canter, hardly lost uh, uh, any games you know, through uh, Capello, then goes to the World Cup and they stink out the joint. What do fans assess uh, a Capello on? They assess him, or, or Svenko and Eriksson, they assess those guys on World Cup performances as it should be. If you're assessing Carolina Marachi, based on the fact that they haven't been able to get out, out of this group, and particularly on the France performance, it has been a poor preparation on top of everything else. She's been there for two years, and they've spent more money over the past two years than they have previously, and by a wide margin. 
So there has to be question marks. This is not about, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the, the being so negative now. This is about critique and proper critique of what the issues are. The issues are here for me is, is, that, is that there's a, there's a balance. You know, you have uh, Jason or Claire sort of uh, alluding to the fact of how our style of play and that we've got to be possession-oriented. And not just those. There's been a lot of people out there when Evan left that it was all about that the way we play is ridiculous. And now we have to go out and play an all-possession brand of football. Well, to do that, you need the players. And to find the players, you need a certain level of commitment of players. Who, who not, it's not just about uh, turning up to training. It's about what they do as individuals throughout their career. So let me give you an example, a personal example of, of a female player that I dealt with uh, in the last year of, of my coaching. I brought him from Japan on exchange. Her name was Ami Otaki, Japanese youth player uh, that played for the World Student Games in Japan. And then she came over and played one season at York. And her technical ability was absolutely unbelievable. I haven't seen one Canadian player, including Christine Sinclair, on a technical level with the juggling and, uh, and uh, ability to strike the ball. I retract it with Christine Sinclair and strike the ball. Clearly, she's one of the best in the world. But as an overall skilled player, this player from Japan was absolutely uh, fantastic. Yet, yet she was just fringe national under-20 uh, uh, teams. For those players to get that kind of level of technique, like they would in, 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 uh, in um, uh, Brazil or any other part of the world, that uh, emphasizes that, it's because these players are born into the culture of it. And they take, to use Malcolm Gladwell's uh, uh, critique, a sociological, a sociological perspective on, on development and technical ability of players, it takes 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours or 5,000 hours of players on their own putting in the technical ability to do it. And in Canada, we just don't have that. So how do you compete, therefore, when you get to the World Cups, where we're always looking for the answers, we're always looking for, you know, Jason has mentioned uh, on that podcast about, uh, or on the CBC, about it being fun. We've got to go to a fun mentality. We couldn't have more fun in this country if we tried. 80%, 80% of our players are recreational. It is all about fun. What it really needs to be is about the professionalism of the development of our players here in this country, the professionalism of it, the commitment of those players to be able to do what they need to do on their own to be able to develop themselves aside from what they get from what should be professional environments. That's the real issue. When you talk about the fun aspect, you're not going to get me on that. I'm not going to go down that road and promote that we need to have more fun in this country. Absolutely not. What I would say is, is at the youth team levels, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age, it's how coaches and how teams accept losing is the important part. We need to accept losing in their stride and just just know that that's a part of the development. But to take the foot off the pedal in terms of the demands that you begin to put on players as far as to try and integrate them into the proper level of commitment and training that they need, those are the major issues that we have within Canadian soccer to develop our players to have the ability to play that we, we all seem to what we want. Which is, uh, which is, in my opinion, looking at the game with rose-colored glasses at times, which I've mentioned before, when we talk about building out of the back at all costs. The reason that Canada played direct the other day is because France pressured them really well tactically. The, uh, the coach on the other side had pressured them. And that's what you end up doing when you don't have the technical ability to do it. There's nothing you can solve in terms of that by bringing any coach in. You could bring in a Brazilian coach in. He's not going to make a major 
fundamental difference. And one more example about the Norwegian style of playing, which, which got criticized heavily here in Canada. If you look at the men's World Cup teams from back in the late 80s and 90s, and their coach at that stage had developed a team that became a top 10 team in FIFA rankings and, and qualified for two World Cups and were very competitive and many of their players went to Europe. He moved out of the Norwegian Federation. They dropped right down to 50 and 60. He's back in the program. They're now ranked 11th in the world. For Canada, at the men and the women's level, it truly is. It's not about being overly direct. It's not about uh, uh, overemphasizing the possession buildup. It's, it's about finding something in between. That's what we need. It was sadly missing, I believe, in this tournament now on reflection of the France game where uh, it was really, really poor performance and, uh, and the coach has to take responsibility at that level for sure. Even with the U-17s exceeding historical expectations at the U-17 World Cup, it's hard not to look at the last few weeks of international soccer by our Canadian national teams as something of a dark period, at least in the context of the high expectations that many people had. I'm curious what words of wisdom you might have for Canadian soccer supporters that are very frustrated with the performance of our Canadian national teams. Yeah, well, you, you know what, I, again, I would say it's about the, the, the ignorance that we have out there, and we need to be very careful on how we, when we're looking for answers, where we go with those. I think, first of all, for all our youth teams is that when we qualify for world championships, we should look upon that as a major success. It's a major accomplishment. And then we go, when we go there and compete on a world level, we need to understand that at that stage, we are, we are really behind the eight ball in terms of the teams that we now compete against are ahead of us for whatever reason. If it's on the, the, the men's side, you know, I know we have a good professional infrastructure, and that's positive, and when we get that, but, but compared to the rest of the world, compared to all the professional teams and academies in England or in Italy or in Spain or in, in Brazil, all over the world or in Mexico even, compared to that, we're still not on the same level. So we should not expect our under-17, under-20 teams to go into these tournaments and, you know, and start competing to win it. We try to, so that when Dale Mitchell takes that team to the quarterfinals, of, uh, of, of the World Youth Championships at the under-20 level with the Atiba Hutchinsons, the Ian Humes, uh, the Josh Simpsons. That is an unbelievable achievement. Like, really, truly, it's an unbelievable achievement. Like, Dale, as a coach, and that group of players, for that moment in time, in that tournament, pulled off a miracle. There's no doubt about that. But we don't look at it that way all too often. And, I, and that's where, when you get former players... Um, you know, and I have to say, what Claire Rustad on, on CBC, I think she's done it. She was very poised and uh, and and showed her experience with uh, with speaking on TV well. But it's also important that you, when it gets to the real tough issues, which is when Canada loses and it's on TV and we make comments, they've got to be right and they've got to be educated because people listen and get influence from those. And same with Jason DeVos. This is not about creating a utopia where we should never criticise that we should always be nice. That's not it. You know, that is that is what in the end develops a losing approach and a losing mentality. We have to be thicker skinned, we have to be tougher, but we have to be educated. Some of your best soccer brains in this country are former coaches or coaches at this current time. There's no doubt about it, but we don't seem to go to those people, you know, that uh, have that experience. Dale Mitchell being uh, one, for example, and again, he takes tremendous criticism. So those are the things you need to dig deep. You need to dig deep to find the 
chances of what really is going on in Canadian soccer, not going down cul-de-sacs where there's a dead end on, on an issue. Not that. And that is what we've got to start to get right. We have a responsibility in the media to inform people, but not to unearth uh, unnecessary uh, um, issues that don't really have nothing to do with anything as far as helping developing uh, soccer in this country. Because once we get to that stage, then we can put in perspective where we are on the global roundabout so that we don't chase people like Hol Grosiek and Evan Pallarud out of this country. And, and again, Evan, Evan was here for for uh, for nine years and, and for sure, okay, fair enough, his time was up. That's a long time to be a national team coach in a foreign country, which Canada would be for, for, for Evan. So no problem with that, but we need to deal with uh, with those things and take it in perspective what he did for, uh, for our country and for our women's program, and then understand that it's somewhere in between of what Evan taught and the principles, and where we would ideally, of course, everyone would like to play like the Brazilian men's team or the Argentinian men's team or the Spanish national team, but we can spend 50 years in this country trying to do that, we're not gonna get there, period. So we need to find something in between of how we play and so the fans need to understand that. We need to look at the under-17s and be proud. We need to be proud of that. We, look, we need to look at the uh, Canadian women's team against Germany and say, right, well, okay, we weren't on the same level as them, and they're probably going to win the World Cup. But we really, on that day, did a great job and uh, could have nicked a result, no matter how you got it, and, and be happy about that. Then when we looked at the fans' performance, it was, it was poor. And unfortunately, Carolina Maracci uh, got exposed to that. Being, being direct... Being honest and being open is uh, is the way that we need to do it in an educated way, and um, I think the fans out there need to need to uh, dig deep to find out what those real issues are. Well, after asking you on several occasions to pick the winner of the 2011 Canadian Championship, you held steady over the last few weeks in continuing to go with the eventual winner in Toronto FC. In what was one of the more exciting and enjoyable matches I've watched at BMO Field this year, Toronto came back in the second half to defeat Vancouver for their third straight Canadian Championship. How'd you like the match? Yeah, I loved the match. I thought it was terrific. Um, you know, I would have a lot to say, I suppose, about it, but it's uh, at the end of the day, when you, you, when you boil it down, is that uh, Toronto FC were uh, on that day. Uh, we're on a different level to uh, to Vancouver, I'm afraid. Vancouver uh, got it wrong in some areas. They looked uh, a little bit lethargic. I know it was exciting. It was because they opened up in the end. But uh, overall, I thought um, Toronto FC were terrific, and uh, they did an excellent job with um, with how they prepared uh, for that. You know, I have to say, and this is what about Aaron Binter, where you know he's a professional, and you know, and it's, it's probably gets advice from Bob the club too. It's just working together as a unit, but they definitely know their stuff. You got Daniel Henry, who struggled the last few games, and that's the thing with with younger players and playing younger players, which uh, Carmen Asako promoted uh, a number of weeks ago. That's the problem because when Daniel Henry gets into that environment, whether it's a physical, mental, or understanding from a tactical perspective how to play. As an 18-year-old in that environment, you make mistakes, and if you make mistakes, Aaron Vinter, you know, his potentially his job's on the line, you lose games. So what he does as a coach is exactly what a coach should do, is that you have to solve problems, and you have to solve problems quickly. So he had a major problem with the centre-back position. So you go to training, you look at the players train, you see who has the brain, the tactical understanding of who can play as a centre-back, the athleticism, and basically who could do that job for you too. So they, they put Eckersley uh, in that position, and I have to say, 
The last two games I saw him as a center back. I mean, he's not the natural perfect profile for, you know, you, you would think of, uh, of a six foot two uh, center back. So he isn't perfect there, but in every other department, I thought he's been, uh, was absolutely outstanding as a center back. No, no doubt about it. He actually reminded me of Gary Mabbitt, that played for, for England uh, for so many times, for, yeah, some, on so many occasions, uh, back uh, a couple of decades ago, and was terrific, played for Tottenham was a wonderful play wasn't necessarily the six foot uh, you know five or six foot three center back but he did a great job and he read the game so well and so that for me is a is a sign of where Aaron Vinter comes from with his experience and understanding of how to uh, of how to put the team together under you know a, a lot of stress with losing players to injuries, not much depth with young players and still having to compete to win games, whether it's in the Canadian Championships or whether it's in the league. He did a really good job and, and you, you know, what can you say about, uh, about Platter? I mean, he was, um, he was terrific. Vancouver, on the other hand, got exposed and again, it was at the back, unfortunately. Clearly, that was, uh, that was a goal. You know, you need to watch the TV replays. So, luck maybe wasn't on uh, Toronto's uh, side then but in the end the best team won Vancouver's problem again at the back is 1v1 defending I I, um, I, I was shocked to see that uh, you know leathers get beat in that. that that's a perfect example so if listeners have been here and they've heard me say about uh, defending 1v1 we'll just go back and watch the highlights and see Platter 1v1 versus leathers if your team is well prepared and you have the right players that can do that that can defend 1v1 they never get beat on that they will never get beaten in a 1v1 situation. You get down low, you watch the ball, and you just watch the ball, and you turn at the right moment and get a block. But Leathers, just it was just like he just stood still and got beat. And that is something that when you critique players to play in positions, you have to address that, and you have to know that if you're going to do that, you can't play. And that needs to be, for me, fundamentally, first and foremost, the, um, the number one issue when you're at the back all those defenders need to be impeccable in how they defend 1v1 once they are once they do back, then you're, you're all set you can, uh, you can start to play and compete and we worry about the other issues and there's another example too when that ball got played over the top that, uh, uh, that the goalkeeper Juncana came out and, uh, and it got knocked off the line that was because the centre back for Vancouver I think it was Boxall was too tight to to um, um, I forget the uh, who which Toronto FC player it was, but it was too tight, and as a result, the ball got played over the top. He means he's in a foot race. That's about distances. It's about understanding that when you're up on the halfway line, you can't be that tight. You need to be two yards off because the ball over the top, you can then have a chance of winning the race. Those are fundamental things of defending. That if you don't get right, that's what happens. And Toronto FC. Uh, absolutely exploited uh, Vancouver yesterday. As a collective group, just to finish off the point, as a collective group, I thought Vancouver, maybe it was the time at 12.30, but it was for sure the humidity. I said it the other day with, uh, with what's very difficult about, I can see about what it would be to coach in the MLS, is that you play in all different uh, climatic environments whether it's at altitude in Colorado, whether it's in incredible heat down in Houston, whether it's in humidity that's uh, much greater than it is uh, in Vancouver, in Toronto, there are factors you have to take into account. And for me, I thought Vancouver struggled and were, were breathing heavy from the get-go. And I'm sure the humidity had a part to play in that. But you can't leverage it. You know it well in advance as a team and as group and as players. But you have to recognize on a fitness, physical level, 
you have to be prepared to play in that environment and you need to be clever and, and strategic how you prepare your players back in Vancouver for that. From the Vancouver standpoint, the Whitecaps clearly missed the playmaking of David Chiamento, who could not play due to injury. How big a factor was his absence in the loss for Vancouver? Yeah, it was a big loss, there's no doubt about it. He's a terrific player, and I think in the final third, here's the thing for me with Vancouver. First of all, they lack electric pace, and I mean frightening pace. They just can't penetrate. You know, we're going to talk about the game on Wednesday in a minute, so I, I won't touch too much on, on, on that game. But, but uh, in, that, uh, in, in the game on Saturday, it was clear, again, they have trouble penetrating. So now you have Ashley up front that's a uh, you know, terrific player, but he's a known player. So opposition, I thought Toronto FC did a really good job of, uh, against him. You have to have other options because he's going to drag players away. So you need to have to be able to exploit. Salinas looks good and he's quick and at times can... Uh, can get by, but it's uh, it was lacking for sure. So Chiamento, you miss because he does cut teams apart. He can get those passes through, and Dunfield, to be fair to him, does make those runs. I mean, they looked, you know, to play the four-three-three, and Dunfield was uh, the, the extra midfield. I thought that was a good move by Tommy Stone. Uh, to be fair, it, it showed that he was from from Wednesday was concerned about how we penetrate and get support for. Um, for Hasley up front, so it was it was a good move. But at times, Dunfield made the runs too early, and then he was stuck and he was marked. You need to pick the times and pick the holes to uh, to make those runs into. But it really is a problem for Vancouver, and so when you don't have Chiamento, and even with Chiamento, they still need a little bit more. You know that um, in order to really be effective in the final third. Again, it's a first-year franchise. They will know so much more about what kind of players they need for the following year. And let's not forget, you know, the uh, performance they played that they put in a couple of weeks ago against Vancouver was, um, uh, sorry, against Seattle was absolutely fantastic as far as uh, performance goes. So, um, you know, they need to uh, to look at now where they're at as far as after these two games because it, it sort of looked like the wheels fell off this particular week for them. At the post-match press conference, Aaron Vinter pointed out that TFC had taken some confidence from their league victory over the Whitecaps just a few days earlier. In that match, Tom Stone chose to rest almost his entire starting lineup. What did you make of that decision, and what are your thoughts on the performances of both teams in the midweek league fixture that Toronto also won? Yeah, I think it was, well, I mean, the way we quantify uh, that, Steve, is uh, ultimately by the results. Vancouver lose both games. You have to go back and uh, would you do something differently? If Tommy said he wouldn't do anything differently as far as selecting the players on a Wednesday, then uh, I think he would be uh, telling a fib, so to speak. Because the reality is, yes, it didn't work. And uh, there is, I've never been, uh, to be honest, uh, even a coaching at university, which is totally different as far as the level, but on terms of the uh, congested schedules, we have to play so many games in like two and a half months. You know, uh, there's, a t- there's a tendency to try and rotate players, but I never have, and it's never really worked for me. I just go and you play your best players when you can, and then make one or two changes. When you clearly see a player's fatigued and tired, you give them the rest at the right moments, and you pick those moments. But psychologically, you know, it's, it, uh, it really seemed to affect uh, Vancouver on the opposite of what it should have been. They almost had too much rest. They looked a little bit lethargic. They would have been walking around the hotel, relaxing. And they, uh, they could have probably done with that game on the Wednesday that, you know, all the, uh, the main starters to have, uh, you know, got used to the humidity and then got good rest after the game. 
it, it just it just didn't work. It didn't work for me. And I, I think Aaron Vince is absolutely right. I mean, everybody was was sort of not everybody, but a number of people were saying, you know, both teams have rested lots of players. Well, no, Toronto didn't rest that many players. They rested two. So that's not a big, you know, they might have played, not played those two anyway, if you want to start your best team on the Wednesday. But it really worked to their benefit. They had most of their players out there. They won the game, which was um, which was good. They deserved to win on, on the Wednesday. It was not as good as the Saturday. But again, it's a bit of a boxing match on points. Uh, you know, for me anyway, Toronto would have won that. They created more chances in the second half. And again, what are the odds? Vancouver makes a mistake and gives away a penalty. You just can't do that. I mean, I, how many penalties Vancouver have given away now is an indication and it's indicative that the 1v1 defending, when you pull each of those defenders out and get them to do 1v1 defending, they seem to be failing way too, uh, way too often. But I would say overall that was, um, you know, uh, that, that particular strategy of resting the players clearly didn't work. But Aaron Vinter uh, got it absolutely right. I mean, I have to say this, uh, Aaron Vinter showed his colors uh, in, in the last two games as far as, um, you know, having something about him. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that, um, that Toronto FC are going to make the playoffs this year. But, um, but I, I would say that it indicates that the uh, Toronto team and Toronto franchise are definitely now, in my opinion, on the right track. For the first time in, in five years, I think that they're going in the right direction. Um, and they look like they're um, they're in good hands with uh, Aaron Venter and um, Bob Duclerc. As Toronto looks forward to the CONCACAF Champions League and to trying to make their way back into the MLS playoffs picture, the team announced last Wednesday that they've bolstered their roster with the signing of not one, but two designated players in Torsten Frings and Danny Covermans. Your thoughts on the signings, Paul? Yeah, I think, well, I have to say this. Is that I think that, along with, with the decision to play all of the, the regular players, or pretty much 90% of the regular players on the Wednesday, along with the signing of these two designated players, gave the whole club and the whole franchise an unbelievable boost. And if I was a player, if I was Stefan Fry in, in that changing room, if uh, I was the Eckersley, if I was uh, uh, Julian de Guzman, uh, Platter, I would be absolutely pumped up with those two signings. And I think that was sort of reflected in those two games that they just played. I mean, everybody get, had that extra skip in their step, that extra energy. Uh, they were all fighting for each other. They really looked together. They got good character now, it looks like. There's no individual self-indulgence. Everyone was rolling up the sleeves to get the job done. And I think that was part and parcel of those signings. I think they're terrific signings, to be honest. I mean, uh, Finns, I think, is 33, 34, so... You know, there's, a, there's an age factor there, but it was uh, the last season he's captain of Werder Bremen. I mean, that speaks for itself. But clearly, um, you know, he's going to be the kind of player that they need in the midfield and also a leader that can drive, I think we mentioned it before, pull a team by the bootstraps and really, you know, be competitive uh, game in, game out. And I, I, I would have to say this, the Klinsmann's reputation is on the line. He would know that when he, uh, any German player that comes in and you've just got to look historically at uh, German players and the, uh, the, the, the team performances, the success of that soccer nation. I mean, I cannot see a German player coming in here and stinking out the joint, and especially with Klinsmann being the one that's persuaded him to come in, because Klinsmann knows at some point in his mind he's probably been searching high and low for the right player to come in from Germany. You know, I, I can't see him making a mistake. 
Uh, I like Torsten Friends anyway. He's uh, he's got an edginess to him. You know, there was that incident in the World Cup where he uh, he got in a fight. You know, I mean, I'm, we're not uh, condoning that, and we're not promoting it either. But it just shows he's got a bit of fire in his belly. I would say it's an excellent signing. Um, the other player, Danny Kuvermans. Uh, you know, somebody has mentioned. I think we're going to talk about it now in, a, in an email with the listeners that. Um, you know, he hasn't played too often. Well, he has played, and he's scored a lot of goals. And I would say watching video clips of him, I mean, he definitely is uh, is a more mobile uh, forward. When you asked me the question, I think a week ago, um, or a couple of weeks ago, about Rob Friend. I mean, he's a more mo- mobile Rob Friend, uh, that's for sure. So it's a better signing. I think he can uh, finish clearly. Um, so it's the timing of that, I think, is outstanding. And again, like Klinsman would be responsible for bringing in uh, Torsen Friends, then uh, then Aaron Vinter would be responsible to uh, to bring in the Dutch Kovermans, and I think that he would put his reputation on the line. So I can't see them making mistakes in those areas. You, you know, never say never. We've, they've had uh, Mister come in that was a, a miserable failure, but I just don't see it at this stage. I just don't see it. I think those are going to be two uh, terrific additions, and who knows. They're still going to need a major, uh, um, you know, miracle. I would say at this stage to make the playoffs, but it can be done. You know, it's a shame they can't play to July 15 because they, they need results in the next couple of games, and they're very very difficult ones going into Houston and New York. But overall, uh, you know, it looks like the timing. I I haven't quite understood Toronto why they haven't got, used their three DPs. I mean, obviously they got Julian, but um, I haven't quite understood why. They wouldn't have um, have used their two DVPs before now, but uh, but you know maybe that's uh, they they didn't believe in the management and the coaching staff, and that would have been warranted with the uh, with the old regime. But certainly now, I think the uh, the decision looks looks a healthy one. I'd have to say this with uh, Julian de Guzman, I thought he did well um, the other day on, on Saturday. I thought he uh, his work ethic was tremendous and was terrific. He's uh, all of a sudden striking the ball better. He's getting the odd shot here and there on target, uh, which before he hasn't. Which means there's good training work uh, done on the on the training field, which would be a demand of the coaches, I suppose. But uh, I would still say that um, just reading between the lines, that Julian is in a little bit of trouble here. I can't see them keeping him around unless he turns in some unbelievable performances uh, before the season's out. So he's under a lot of pressure. Because the one thing about Toronto FC, and I think this, uh, this coaching staff, we, we, we questioned their pedigree the other day, is that with uh, the major, major difference you can make between you and your opponents is, is the DP players that you get. Because on a, on a relative scale, pretty much all the other players which sort of should be hovering at the same level. If you want to make a difference, the DP players you bring in. So it's, it's all well and good to have two DPs that are excellent in Kovermans and, uh, and friends. But if Julian de Guzman doesn't step up and improve and play like a DP, then um, I don't think there's any sentimentality with uh, Aaron Vinter at all. And I think he'll be moved out and they'll bring in another DP player that's going to produce. We would be remiss if we didn't touch on the recent news that Dwayne DiRosario has been traded again, this time to DC United. His tenure with the Red Bulls did not last long, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on the trade. Well, it's, it's interesting. I think when he got traded to, uh, to New York, uh, Batke, the, uh, the coach was very upbeat and very positive about him. So for it to be such a negative turn now, um, you know, and, and not all trades are because somebody's, you know, a, a bad attitude, there's been an incident, but... Uh, 
you know, it could just be that they all of a sudden see a need in the central midfield and have too many players up front. But generally, truly, it's, uh, you have to look at that and, and it concluded that he isn't the right fit for whatever reason. It could be performances, it could be his approach uh, um, off the field or, or even his attitude in the change room. Who knows? I think it would be real conjecture and just speculation to see that. But the one thing that clearly stands out is that it's not particularly good. It's sort of the downward spiral of an aging player now going around and selling himself to each team, you know, just going on and uh, seeing out his career. And again, I'll go back to, to the issue with Dwayne Duizario, that when he left Toronto, um, it was a tragedy, really. It was a tragedy that was self-inflicted. And uh, he might never accept that, and uh, his supporters might not, but that is the basic brutal reality, is that that was all about uh, uh, Dwayne Di Rosario cultivating that. And, um, and I think you look back on his career and see that, that is, uh, that's a mistake. I can guarantee you this. And Vinter, MLSC and Toronto C have really, truly moved on from Dwayne Di Rosario, and uh, he's not an issue for them anymore. They're probably relieved. I just think it's uh, it's too bad. It's too bad for Dwayne. It's too bad for uh, for Toronto. It's too bad for uh, for Canadian soccer fans uh, overall. But I wish him well in um, DC United. We are a few days out from celebrating another Canada Day here in this great country of ours. A friend of Red Nation recently asked if we could pose a question in a celebrating Canada vein to you. He wanted to know if you could name one Canadian player from the past or present who you would have liked to have played with and why. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. I know you said one. I can't. I, I can't really mention one, knowing all the different players over the um, over the years. But I can give you a few, Steve, if you like. Um, I would say, if from the present, it would be Atiba Hutchinson. It would have been, um, you know, an honour to have uh, played with uh, Atiba. Just a, a, tr- a tremendous uh, all-round athlete. Uh, great attitude. You know, lovely presence about him, but uh, a really uh, gifted. Um, soccer player and I remember when he was 15 coming in with our under 20 program you know, he was way too young and he was too uh, really and slim and, um, but he just had a wonderful attitude and you could clearly see within a couple of weeks that um, you know, he had a suitcase full of talent and potential that I'm so happy that he's, that he's uh, reached so that would be one I would say from, from the past it could be anywhere from, from Thomas Rosinski to Frank Yallop you know, Frank Yallop and Thomas both played in the Premier League. Um, you know, Thomas, fantastic uh, player in the attacking third, great pace. So, uh, you know, to have, as a right fullback, uh, which would have been my best position to have played behind him, would have been, uh, you know, tremendous. And Frank Yallop, you know, playing at, uh, at Tottenham. And, uh, and at Ipswich was, uh, was a tremendous player, but also a great, uh, great character and a great, uh, great person. I know Colin Miller speaks really highly of him. You know, Frank, it, it's just... Um, uh, it doesn't surprise me that Frank has gone on to the coaching fraternity and, and done so well because he's, uh, he's a well-balanced individual, uh, doesn't take things too seriously, but, um, but definitely knows what's required of being, uh, of being a winner. He was like that as a player. And probably the other one would be Paul Pesolito. I played with Paul Pesolito back in the old CSL days when he was young and I was sort of aging. But, um, you know, it was absolutely fantastic. I remember going to London one time and he got me tickets to watch a Fulham game. And uh, you know, I remember speaking to the groundsman there, and he was just saying about how he's a, you know, he's a, an idol of the fans because he's just so exciting and so fast and quick, and you know, and again, another great um, ambassador of, uh, of Canadian soccer, and, and really was probably the pioneer of Canadian players um, that um, that went over to Europe and began to make it prior to Paul going over there. 
pretty much uh, not too many uh, Canadians or North American players were accepted in the European market, but uh, Paul certainly bro broke down those uh, those barriers. So would have loved to have played with him at the national team level, and um, you know it's a good question from uh, from the listener, and uh, that's my answer. So unfortunately, I couldn't keep it to one; I kept it to four. As we've done many times in the past, I wanted to end off this episode of the Paul James on Soccer podcast by getting you to answer a user-submitted question. Um, you referred to it earlier. Italian-Canadians sent in a question regarding uh, Danny Coverman's, um, and I think he sent that in advance of the actual signing, but predicting that it would happen. Um, he ended off that question just by asking whether TFC should sort out the back line or the midfield following that signing. And um, it looks like Aaron Venter chose to sort out the midfield. So I'm just wondering uh, what you think about that decision to go for a midfielder rather than a central defender. Yeah, I, sometimes that you can't dictate that. You know, there's also the market for players and what you can get. And uh, I believe that um, uh, Aaron Venter has come out and said, and this might be positive actually for Julian de Guzman, but he's actually come out and said that they're looking for a centre-back that's, that's North American. So they're not going to make the centre-back as a DP player. So clearly, it's a good question from, uh, from the listener. Um, I think they've done that. They're, they're clearly um, satisfied with Kuvermans up front and uh, Torsten Frings in the middle of the park. And it's absolutely right from the listener with our email about the spine. That is the spine. And now you need a, um, a central defender. But again, I think it shows, I think we questioned about being pedigreed the other day as far as certainly he was as a, as a player now it's about are they, are they pedigreed is Paul Mariner and uh, Bob DeClerc and Aaron Vinter are they pedigreed for, for the coaching uh, fraternity for in the MLS can they do it and the signs are is that uh, with these signings and what they've done and how they performed the other day that they could well be because it's, it's about strategy with bringing in players as well when you look at if they now need a, a centre back them coming out and saying they look to get that in in the MLS leads me to believe that the other DP player will either be Julian Guzman that they'll look to keep or they will look to move Julian out and bring in somebody else for another position, another attacking type position, midfield or, or wide player. I think they're clever there because uh, they should be able to find the quality they need within the MLS where they don't have to go out and pay DP status for a defender, which... Um, which, uh, which I would agree with. You know, uh, it's interesting. I, I, I wonder what Paul Mariner would think about Shari Joseph. You know, uh, in New England, I know he's a central midfield player, but I cannot see the way he plays that position and his physical uh, presence. Why he could not, in any way, shape, or form, not play as a centre back and be an outstanding one. He's a terrific player. But again, that would be uh, a question of money, DP status, and what that would all mean. But. Um, I think they're on the right track. I think that um, those are two good signings to start with now as the DP, and uh, who knows what happens this season with them qualifying for uh, for the CONCACAF uh, Champions League. I think all of a sudden it uh, could get a little bit exciting for a TFC fan. If you have questions that you'd like Paul to address, please send your email to Paul James at rednationonline.ca.